but it's really interesting to contemplate what is wisdom and how does it show up? You know, even in just like, if we look at the earth, the earth requires like the cultivation and the attention, but it also reminds us that we're interconnected. It reminds us that we have a reliance. If we're not so separated from the source, then we know we have the understanding that the earth isn't feeding us in any and every tangible way. And then we have the responsibility then to be kind, the ultimate expression of wisdom. Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based sciences. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. So we are continuing our kosha countdown to Earth Day. And today we're going to be looking at the Earth through the lens of Vignana Maya Kosha, which is the wisdom sheath the layer of wisdom. And even just saying that, I'm sure anyone hearing that is already thinking of all the ways they can connect the wisdom of the earth with their own types of wisdom. And how interesting is it that we have spent the time that you and I have spent individually and collective preparing for a casual conversation <laughs> about wisdom with a whole bunch of research so that we can have a casual conversation. <laughs> Oh, man. So wisdom, we are out in the earth. And I would, you know, I thought when I looked at this, I said, you know, maybe I should remind, come back to what is beyond the Mayakosha. And so just a reminder for anyone who's listening, this is what I found. It is a kosha that's linked to the right side of our brain. And that is, this is from Kripalu's website, uh, the right side of our brain and our parasympathetic nervous system. So this is a place where we get to rest and relax, part of the mind that can remain aware of our thoughts without getting so caught up in them that we know that we're thinking, but we don't get so attached, right? That's our, our yogic practice of non-attachment. So it's our ability to start to think of things like, why do I react this way? Why did, why did I say that thing right then? Why is Teresa saying this thing right now? Like, what is the wisdom that comes behind our thoughts? And how do we really stay in that creative parasympathetic part of ourselves and our personality? Yeah. You know, we're coming from Manomaya Kosha, which was the mental sheet that brings in thoughts and senses and feelings and all of that. 
so much of what I was looking at in this preparation for our casual conversation would but put knowledge and wisdom together. So wisdom and knowledge seem to be these natural allies that we're moving. If once we have the information, the knowledge, then we can be right. discerning with that. And I feel like discernment is wisdom in some way. I'm not reading that from anything, but I had read a list of five characteristics of wisdom from positive psychology. And they say creativity, curiosity, judgment, love of learning, and perspective. They all make sense, but judgment is a really loaded word. And when I was reading it, I kept thinking, well, I would substitute discernment for judgment because judgment has a, has a certain hierarchy to it. And wisdom feels, I'm going to use the word ubiquitous, but that's not really <laughs> what I mean. Wisdom, wisdom is wisdom. Judgment comes from our own, our, the lens of our own perspective, which is the, you know, on that list as well. But I think wisdom is broader than judgment. And so I would just throw discernment in that we can take all the things that we think we know and we can sort of break them down and see, does this work? Is this right? And, you know, go from there. In my casual conversation research, <laughs> I stumbled upon an article from Cosmo Journal, which is entitled Realigning with Earth Wisdom. And it opens with something that I thought was really like, it grabbed me right away. And you're always looking for like, okay, am I really going to dive into this or is this not what I'm looking for? And the opening line is the wisdom of the earth belongs to all life. Is all life encoded with our DNA? Is it the wordless, fathomless reality of being? And Wait so the wordless fathomless reality, fathomless of, reality being. of being. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. I just, this is where words kind of turn. I had a little orgasm right there. I'm sorry. Oh, I had to, you know. No, enjoy that sister. Enjoy <laughs> it anytime time it comes. A wordgasm. I'll call it a wordgasm. Yeah. Uh. She says, first there are the phenomena we encounter with our senses. Rain and the way it smells, bird song at dawn, the glittering of dew, the summer breeze everyday gifts offered by the earth, if we are all available to receive them. And so it just reminded me of like, what is encoded into our DNA? How much of it comes from the earth? And are we ready to step into the gifts that we have in the earth? And they can be so subtle, like she mentions here. The air that we breathe or the water that, you know, kind of hydrates our plants. These things maybe I have learned at times to take for granted. I go outside, I breathe. I stay inside, I breathe, right? How often, unless you and I are having a casual conversation we researched for for days, to really spend that time of noticing the things that are gifts that have been taken for granted. And that noticing gives us a choice how we act. So we have to know something and then action is the thing that will manifest the goodness or the not good, whatever it is that you're manifesting. I mean, I'm not going to call that. But in the Talmud, which is from the Jewish tradition, my dad had this quote and I found it after he died. And I've heard him say it a few times as well in my life. But the Talmud says that the highest form of wisdom is kindness. And so if we think about that in relationship to the earth, I mean, we can think about it in relationship to ourselves and to each other, how we can, you know, help evolve and progress as the human race. 
But if the highest form of wisdom is kindness, then we also have to examine what, how we interact with the earth. Are we being kind when we are, you know, paving? I mean, there are certain things we, we're doing and we have to kind of do as our population grows and we compromise certain things. But I, I remember doing a Native American immersion with my mom and my niece many, many years ago in Massachusetts. And one of the things that we learned was that the Native Americans would, if they were pulling a plant, they would never pull everything. They would just pull what they needed. And they would either leave tobacco or pennies or some kind of offering to the earth in gratitude for what the earth was giving them. And that, I mean, I, if I remembered nothing else from that experience, that was the thing, this gratitude and this reverence for our planet, for this earth that sustains us. You know, the earth doesn't need us, but we absolutely need the earth. The earth, yeah. 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 You know, when you talked about kindness, it reminded me of something else that I read in the article. It says our collective consciousness truly shapes our reality. And we talked about that so much, like where we put our attention and what we think about, but that's on an individual basis. And she goes on to say, imagine a room of a hundred people and they are enraged and filled with anger, hatred, and greed. What reality will they create? Now in the same room, imagine that each of the hundred people is loving and kind. They share ideas and resources with openness and joy. They embody earth wisdom. What possibilities might emerge from them? And so in the creation of our own reality and taking cues from nature and moving on, you know, what we put together and collaborate with is what we create. And I just read that one thing and even reading it back right now, I have chills on my arms from uh, that one statement. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I saw also in my preparation <laughs> was that the key to wisdom is understanding. And within the realm of what you just read, we have to pay attention. We have to listen. We have to use our senses to take in the information so that we can understand what it is. How can we, how can we be wise? How can we be discerning? How can we be anything without this, the fundamental piece of understanding? And, you know, if we are holding on too tight to anything, then that understanding is going to be out of our reach. This idea that the key to wisdom is understanding requires that we be present. And so even some of the practices that we've offered, standing on the earth, in Tadasana, you know, being in communion with nature in one way or another, breathing with the, the breeze as it's flowing through the trees, you know, whatever it is, if we want to gain a level of wisdom, about our earth and what the earth's wisdom is. We have to surrender sometimes the things that we've been holding on to so tightly about what we think it is. But what do we, what do we sense? We're coming from Manamaya. We're coming from the thoughts and the feelings. So maybe there's some wisdom there in the order. You know, how can we be expected to have a wisdom from the earth unless we spend time with it? And Obviously, we all walk on the earth and we're out, we're running around and we're doing our things and we're in and out of the shopping. And I always find it interesting when things are synchronistic. And in finishing and completing my research and preparation last night, I decided it was time for me to sit down. It had been a long day. And so there I am off to Netflix to find something to uh, relax with <laughs> and calm my mind. And I have been watching New Amsterdam and 
the last season, uh, this is a whole aside, but it's not on Netflix now. So I had to go and find my Peacock, <laughs> get my Peacock password. So I can see this last, last season. Anyway, I digress. So in this season, in this episode, um, Dr. Fromm Iggy is the director of psychiatry at New Amsterdam Hospital. And the scene that captured my attention was he's in a van with four teenagers and he's talking and he's driving out and you can see he's on this country road and they are all on their phones. And he's talking and nobody is listening. Nobody's responding. And you can see that he's getting frustrated. So, you know, then he starts saying all the silly things that, you know, you want to see if anybody's listening to you. So you say <laughs> the most outrageous things to see if you're going to get a reaction. But so finally he pulls over and he gathers up all the phones and he's like, that's it. We're going out into nature to have a good time. So he's taking them out for a hike and he gathers up all their phones and he starts talking about being, being addicted to phones and, you know, how difficult it can be to be so absorbed in technology at the expense of being out in nature and doing other things in your life. And of course, now they're going to go out into the woods. So, you know, you don't have to be a genius to know where the storyline is going. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, yes. <laughs> One of the students challenges him and says, you know, the only person whose phone is still on them is yours. So, of course, you know, what kind of a doctor does that now where you're responsible for all these kids and then you leave your phone? But he does. And of course, they get lost out in nature. Anyway, his goal was to allow the kids to go forest bathing, to take them out and show them something else. And as they get lost in the woods, it begins to rain and they become resourceful. And uh, so there's the, the silver lining is that these uh, students are, are patients that he was working with were able to kind of look into their own personal resources in the rain and one of them starts a fire for them to keep warm because it's getting late and they're getting cool and so dr from says so where did you learn to start a fire like that and he goes on youtube <laughs> <laughs> should should we have said spoiler alert before this oh maybe you <laughs> know you if you have to watch spoiler the... alert <laughs> yeah, there's other really good things yes. that happen in that episode so dive right in <laughs> Well, you know, you bring up a really interesting point because we've both said in this podcast many times that the things that we put our attention to, you know, be curious about what that is, but also the practice of those things, the, the commitment to showing up with consistency is the thing that will allow it to grow and nurture and become. And what we've done with what we now call smartphones, they're smart. I can't even count how many times I've said, I'm going to consult my phone. It's way smarter than I am, you know? And so I go on and I Google something on the phone and the phone, this little handheld computer that is right out of Star Trek, which I fucking love. But this idea that in some ways we've relinquished the responsibility for cultivating those qualities that would allow us to be without them. You know, we've become so attached to these smartphones that I wonder sometimes, like how, how much easier are we trying to make our lives? And we've talked about this too with the self-parking cars and you know all of these things that make our lives easier in developed nations. And oh, it just, it feels like we are losing the part of our brains that allow us to develop those types of skills that, you know, what if the sunburst happens and all the satellites go out and technology is, you know, we've got to start from one. 
you know, all these dystopian futuristic shows that we want. I mean, that I watch <laughs> certainly show a world that, you know, people have to re-figure out how to be in. Now, granted, these are extreme conditions, but I think the metaphor is there, you know, that to, to take a, a sabbatical from technology occasionally, I think is a really good thing so that as we evolve as humans, that part of our brain can still be fired up. Yeah, I completely agree. And in reference to like phones and my own personal wisdom, you know, I, I think wisdom takes a certain amount of concentration and relaxation and, you know, not focus in a very active way, but just being able to be focused in the moment and to experience through my senses and my instincts. And I know that sometimes when I'm in the midst of just like, hey, I'm in my own space, phones just sometimes make a ton of freaking noise. You know, there's dings from Messenger and there's dings from mail coming in and there's dings because now there's a text and all of a sudden, you know, nothing is going on. I don't even know what any of them say. I just know I had ding, bing, bong and all this stuff going on where I'm turning around and saying stuff. I'm like, okay, just leave me alone. Right? And there is nothing to leave me alone and there's no aggression and there's probably, you know, it could be my birthday and all I got was just, you know, 10 different birthday wishes. Right? But the reaction to the constant ding-dong-ding interruption is sometimes just the stealer for, my, for me, the stealer of my wisdom because it takes me into a place it, it's guiding like uh very pavlovian right now all of a sudden instead of being able to sit and be which i think has a certain uh, expansive kind of wisdom to have a practice of being able to just be i'm angry at some device that has done absolutely nothing Okay, so this is really interesting because so much has come up. So from the five characteristics of wisdom, perspective was one of the things. So the perspective, if we choose to shift that perspective, like Thich Nhat Hanh had said about dings and bells and certain things, that there are opportunities to wake up. Now, I'm not saying that it's possible to do this, you know, with every single ding. Like, I'm not sure it's possible to engage your pelvic floor for an entire 90-minute class. I'm not, I, these are things I don't know if they're true, but you know, whatever. So, but if we choose, if we have the, the wisdom in the moment to shift our perspective from annoying to waking up, to allowing that ding to remind us to be present, to say, instead of being annoyed by that ding, I'm going to say, oh, that's dinging. Where was I? Do I have an opportunity to, to realign? And the other thing that came up, which I thought was really interesting, you brought up instinct which is so important. And we talk about, you know, our gut and that feeling of knowing without knowing. So we've got Manipura, which is like gut reaction. We've got Agnia, which is that sort of, you know, knowing without knowing why we know. But as humans, I think we, we spend so much time rationalizing what we want in and out of favor according to our will. Like our will can be stronger than our instinct. So in other words, our will can be stronger than our wisdom. Because that instinct comes from something. And so when I saw these four types of wisdom, they made me laugh. So they come from James 3.15 to James 3.17, as if I have any idea. I've never read the Bible, but this is the source it came from. That there's an earthly wisdom, which I sort of thought of as at, um, Anamaya, 
There's intellectual wisdom, which could be coincide with Manamaya. Devilish wisdom, which I don't know where to put that, but I love that trickster kind of devilish wisdom. Wisdom from above. So this godly, divine, divinity kind of wisdom. But I would add trust and surrender as wisdom as well. Because when we trust our instincts, we're trusting our innate, inborn wisdom. And sometimes we have to surrender the will in order to tap into that instinct. So there's a lot of energy going around here, Pranamaya Kosha, the vital energy that we get to work with to direct it so that we can, in those moments, shift perspective from annoying to wake up. I have no idea what I just said, but it came for, it just downloaded and whoosh, and went right out. Hopefully it made sense. It did because, you know, there's some fascinating things that I find about instincts. One is that I've read and not in this preparation, but a long time ago is that humans are the only species, the only animals and mammals on earth that have trained ourselves away from our instincts. We don't trust our instincts. Right. So sometimes you just know something and then we rationalize rather than leaning in and trusting our instincts. And those instincts have a wisdom to them. The body is programmed to understand. And so when an instinct is coming up, like the hair on the back of your neck standing up, and you're like, oh, I am in an unsafe place. So one of the examples that I am falling back into, and again, downloads of previous thoughts and things that I've experienced, was people's fascination when they see big animals or any animals. So occasionally, like a deer is on the side of the road, and I'm like, oh, look at the deer. Or a fox, when I lived on the farm, I was like, look, there's the fox. I, I need to see that. And on trips to um, national parks, you know, in Yellowstone, there is a bison on the side of the road. Every single car stops and people get out with their cameras because we just want to see these animals. And so where does that like fascination come from? Is it like a, is it written into our DNA from our evolution of being a part of, of living out in the woods and out in nature before we had houses and homes and maybe we lived in caves or huts or small places. We were farmers. Is it because we shared space with these animals and somewhere, and I don't know, I'm just like casual conversationing it. Is it written into our DNA to just have this familiarity that, ooh, there, and they respond to their instincts. It's our fascination to see, to be close to, to spend time with those animals that we see along the way, part of our instincts or our written into, I don't know, this wisdom of our own programming, our own DNA, our own genetics, whatever we can call that. I'm inclined to feel that way. And when you say that, it feels right. And the other part of me that likes to debate and kind of see the other sides is that could it also be our separation? Not so much intrinsic to our DNA, but we have been so separated for so long that animals become like a spectacle. There's this entertainment factor. There's like there was a Seinfeld years ago, and I don't know if this is even going to fit, but I love this and I think about it a lot. He's in the back of a taxi cab and, you know, in taxis in New York, which I don't even know if they're a thing anymore with Uber and all the other stuff. 
but there would be a separator that had a little a window that was usually plexiglass or something and very scratched up and hard to see through. But he was in this cab and the cab is doing all sorts of dangerous things. It's like, you know, running this red light. It's, you know, weaving in and out of traffic. There are bikers and messengers and all sorts of stuff. Driving in New York City is like playing in a video game. It is absolutely crazy. Bells and whistles and all of that. Um, and Jerry's in the back saying, oh, that looked really dangerous. I would never do that. As if he was watching the whole thing on TV. As if he was in the cab. He was in the ride, in his body, in the car, driving. And yet there was this sense of separation that he could compartmentalize what the driver was doing and his experience with his own in the back. So I wonder if sometimes we we walk around with this metaphorical plexiglass, you know, separator, this divider that allows us to witness without necessarily fully engaging or feeling like we're part of it. And so the piece maybe there's a longing in there also to go back to and to be a part of this natural wisdom, this natural order of things. You know, one of the things that came up in when I was listing like ways to look at Mother Earth through Vignana Mayakosha, that the Earth is a living organi organism and requires care and nurturing. And so do we. And so in part of, and the reason I'm bringing that one in here is that I think that compartmentalizing and that separation, we've lost that, that care and that attention to remaining connected. Just a thought. Yeah. Um, I like having different ways to think about, about it because I hadn't looked at it from that we lost that connection. And that will go back to something I mentioned in one of our, after I got back from uh, this training for the Mindful Outdoor Leadership was the question that was asked is, you know, and I shared this in, in another episode, so I won't go too far into detail, but the change that happened when the wolves left Yellowstone and then how it reversed when they came back. And there's a much more deep story about all the impacts of the change in that ecosystem. But the real point was that my teacher, uh, Mike, Micah, asked the question, so if there was such a great impact when the wolves left, what was the impact when the humans left, right? What happened when we left the wisdom of this balanced ecosystem? How can the wolves leave and have such a great impact, but when humans stepped out of the woods and into our homes and highways and buildings, what impact happened in the way that the ecosystem operates? And maybe how we treat it when we didn't rely so directly on the outside environment, which we do, but it's kind of coded. Like, you know, we turn the water faucet on and the water comes out. We don't go down and get it out of the river. So when we took that step back from, you know, being directly dependent upon those resources and those resources in many ways being directly dependent upon us as part of that holistic ecosystem, how did that change the wisdom of how how the earth acts? Not it's how so the earth Well, is. because we're separated from our source. And we talked about it too when I said in class, who here would be a vegetarian if you had to kill your own meat? You know, we are so separated. And there's that plexiglass divider mm -hmm. again. You know, we can turn on our water instead of walking three miles to the well, which in some communities, I mean, that's like the water cooler. The women, especially in certain cultures, would work together, walk, 
gather their water, but that's where the gossip of the community and not just gossip, but news and other things were shared. So what happens then to their cultural experience when they're given running water? Where is that water cooler? Where is the central space for gathering for these women now? So we've not only separated from the source of the water, but the source of our community. And so, you know, that's just one example. And I just think it's really, really interesting, the separation from source. My dad was a man of faith and of science. And some people would say that's not possible. But I think if you believe in God in some, in a very real, in a real way, and who am I to say what is real, but then anything and everything that is created comes from the source. So science is not separated from divinity in any way, as far as I'm concerned. And my dad felt that way too. And he would say that nature, he believed in nature as this governing force of wisdom because, and I think instinct comes into this part of the conversation too, because, you know, the earth is not consciously thinking about what's coming next. There's a natural cycle of seasons. There's a natural cycle of creation, preservation, and destruction, and then pause. And so this is where we get to learn how to embody this kind of wisdom. And it's it's Earth's instinct. It's the way that it is. It's this the energy that is way bigger than we are. We already, like this wisdom, we keep saying that word, we've talked about in also the wisdom of the cells of our body. Our body has this innate wisdom of knowing how each and every cell has its own me- memory. We talked about that in Manamaya Kosha. It has a memory and it's somewhat programmed like like our software of what to happen, that cells have wisdom. We start with two cells. So how do they know which cell is going to become a hair cell or a skin cell or a heart cell or a bone cell? There's this wisdom that is just written into the program. And the earth has, and plants have a similar wisdom, like the wisdom of photosynthesis and cellular respiration. And I'm going to read this. Photosynthesis and cellular respiration are two interconnected processes that are essential to the life of the earth. Photosynthesis occurs in plants and trees and microorganisms. It converts sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide into oxygen and glucose. This process sustains life by by producing oxygen which is necessary for the respiration of all and many organisms. So this interconnectedness and the wisdom of every different type of being, every sentient being having a wisdom of how their personal being, whatever that being is, is going to act and, and produce and interact and interact as part of this holistic whole. Bring up a really interesting question. And the question is, is wisdom connected to consciousness in any way? Because if cells can have wisdom, if the earth has wisdom, if plants have wisdom, and I, I think that, you know, we could have a conversation of whether or not plants are sentient beings. I I tend to think of the, the, the fauna more in the sentient way. And I'm not saying that they're not alive and don't have experiences, but to be to define what these terms mean in in a tangible way, that wisdom seems to go right back to the instinct, because instinct doesn't come from a thought process. It comes from a feeling. It comes from some place, or at least it, you know, from my limited understanding of how it actually works. And I'm not a big air quote person, but I just air quoted that. That what is wisdom? 
So, you know, does wisdom, does it necessarily have to come from the knowledge? Like I was implying with Manamaya Kosha, that comes first, we have the knowledge, but Manamaya also has the feelings. So maybe it's more connected to the feeling than it is to the thought and what that brings up. Because, you know, as thinking beings, it's really hard, like we've said in the past, to really compartmentalize any of these things that we talk about because there's overlay, there's gray areas. We're never going to be an either or situation. But it's really interesting to contemplate what is wisdom and how does it show up? You know, even in just like if we look at the earth, the earth requires like the cultivation and the attention, but it also reminds us that we're interconnected. It reminds us that we have a reliance. If we're not so separated from the source, then we know we have the understanding that the earth is feeding us in any and every tangible way. And then we have the responsibility then to be kind, the ultimate expression of wisdom. I wonder if wisdom has to do with some sort of an inherent intelligence and knowledge. Like the systems that I'm talking about, the ecosystems, the body systems, the cells, they self-regulate and they're adaptable to so many different things. They're adaptable to changing environments. Just think of, uh, you know, us talking about the seasons of the seasons of the year, but also the seasons of life, that each and every one of these cells are adaptable to a continuous changing environment. And they figure out how to self-regulate and still be able to efficiently, until we're at the end of our days, efficiently perform the functions of the body, that they have this innate knowledge, I don't know, an intelligence to know that when I put food into my belly, it needs to be digested. And then it goes through this process. And it can be adaptable. You know, certain things I don't like. And my body says, you know what, I'm going to give you a heartburn so you don't eat that thing anymore. But then right? this conversation can move into like really serious disease as well, you yeah. know, which is is complicated because, you know, the maybe I, I don't even want to I, I started it, but I don't really want to continue to go there because it it's such a an interesting conversation in terms of inherent wisdom. But wisdom doesn't always fall on the side of what we think we want or what we think is good. Like I it's really this is a, this is a muddled, muddy kind of space. I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's intriguing. But go ahead. I'm going to say this and then um, we'll see where it goes. But. <laughs> When you started talking about diseases, the first thing that came into my thoughts was that there's a significant amount of diseases of lifestyle, right? Uh, maybe some, and I'm not saying that there aren't some things that are definitely and way beyond our control, but there are also things that are within our control and, you know, managing stress, having practices of meditation, going forest bathing when you're stressed out. There are things that we can bring into our life that help to manage and maybe even alleviate some of the diseases of lifestyle. And I've read recently that, you know, medicine does a really, really great job of researching and working with diseases that are beyond our control, but maybe not so much in the diseases that are within our control. And that is a lot of what yoga brings to us in our practices of breath work and movement practices, the yamas and the niyamas. And of course, there's other things beyond yoga 
that help us, you know, different types of movement and exercise that keeps our physical body healthy and moving and strong, food that we eat and activities and finding this balance between work and play. But if our body can have diseases of lifestyle, then what are the diseases of lifestyle that the earth is experiencing, right? That are contributors to its breakdown and that can be controlled, that we can do something about. There are definitely, and I'm not going to you know, say that there aren't things out there that are beyond our control. And there are many people who have things going on in their physical body and challenges. But if we could identify the things that we do that are possibly preventable, we're not taught prevention in our bodies. So how would we take that lack of knowledge that we're not learning and not being taught if we taught how to find prevention and take care of our bodies in a preventative way, would it bleed over into how we treated the earth and maybe its diseases of lifestyle? Yeah. When I brought it up, I just, I have uh, several friends, close friends who are suffering from major diseases right now. And so I didn't want to, you know, get in, if we were talking at the cellular level, but the piece that came up when you were talking about the diseases of lifestyle made me think of, you know, no one is to blame for what they have, what they're experiencing, because everything is there. I mean, I, I don't, don't want to get into that philosophical conversation, but maybe the wisdom isn't what the body is producing as disease, but the wisdom is how we meet the challenge. And I have very, very close friends who are beyond inspiring beyond, like, I look at them and I think, oh my God, if and when it's my turn, I can only hope that I can meet my challenges with the same grace and humor and wisdom as these people that I am fortunate enough to reflect back in my life. And so then if, if to, to take that and put it to the earth, so sometimes we have to be faced with an acute situation before we're willing to see it and deal with it. So, you know, climate change has been around forever. But, and we would be sort of silly to think that we're not contributing to the acceleration of the experience we're having. We are not going to be able to stop it. Things are happening, but there is cause and effect in everything. And so if we can find that cause and effect, then it is incumbent upon us to do the preventative measures, to do what we can. But it, it, it feels very much like we're waiting for all the water to go away, that we're waiting for, you know, tornadoes in California, <laughs> you know, I used to just think earthquakes, but tornadoes in California, different weather patterns that are anomalous and extreme, you know, that it's, we have the human ingenuity to be able to, I think, do what we need to do. But if we're waiting for that acute situation for the wisdom to arise, then, you know, it's going to take a lot more work, not saying that it can't happen, but I think sometimes even in our small lives, and it doesn't have to be disease, but we're sort of, it's those wake up moments. It's the near death experience. It's that, you know, friend who lost, you know, her whatever. Like I just, those moments that wake us up from the tiniest little ding of the annoying phone to the really extreme situations. So because we're all at different places in the way that we are living our lives and where we're accepting our own wisdom and surrendering to it will depend on how acute the situation has to be in order to meet it, I think. Yeah, when you were talking and you talked about meeting the challenge, it reminded me that well-being 
is not the absence of a disease, but how do we meet that challenge and what do we do? And the well-being of the earth in relation to what you just said is not that there isn't things that are stressful to it and that we do or don't, we contribute some of those stresses and maybe not all of them. Some of them are just natural processes, but how do we meet those challenges and how can we minimize the things that we are contributing to? Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, man. You know, these casual conversations, you talk enough, we're going to misspeak, we're going to say shit that, but we, you know, I don't want to avoid the hard conversations. I don't want to avoid, you know, the dark waters where there's wisdom that is lurking beneath the surface. And so I hope that listeners are taking in the conversation through a perspective of kindness and knowing that our intentions are only for a greater understanding, a greater wisdom, so that we can tap back into the source and remember the kindness. And listen, sometimes I am a fucking asshole. There's no question. Like, I don't come on here and say, oh, like I have done all of these practices and now I'm immune to all of the shit that life has to bullshit. I call shenanigans on that. But this is just a conversation to expand the boundaries and the borders of what we can talk about, what is relevant, and how we can live a more interconnected and kind existence. Yeah, and there are different ways that I personally were was awakened to the things that I did that were extremely wasteful. One significant thing that showed my own wastefulness was when I made the decision to travel in a motorhome and the amount of water that I had when I was in the middle of nowhere was limited. It was 30 gallons. And depending on how long I wanted to stay out in nature, away from um, and boondock without resources, meant the more I really began to pay attention. It took me months when I moved into my apartment to stop turning the shower water off while I was taking a shower. And still some days I do exactly that. My cousin used to refer to it as, you know, a Navy shower because he wears on a submarine and a ship a lot, uh, the same as the RV shower. But to get in, get wet, turn the water on, turn it off, soap up and rinse off was a natural thing to happen when I knew that my water resource was limited. So it taught me to look at water in a much different way. And I think that's really where I'm circling around this, you know, how do we have our, how do we build our own personal wisdom and knowledge to recognize my own personal contribution to how the earth and myself can stay healthy. And You know, another thing is I learned where my food came from. When I moved into Morrisville, I started buying my food at the farm that was adjacent to my property. I knew where it came from. It didn't have to be shipped across the country to get to my table. Um, Sometimes I even rode my bike over there because it was so close. So not even gas in my battery operated car. So there are just, it was, it's a slow evolution. And I'm sure that as I move forward, there's going to be so many more where aha moments where I look at myself and go, what are you doing? You know, after buying my bags to put my groceries in so I don't have the plastics, sometimes I walk in and I was like, I forgot to put the bags in my car and they're still in the apartment. 
And then I sit there and have to have a little talk with myself about not making sure I put them back in my car. But, you know, these little tiny steps that are awakenings to remember to be a little bit more conscious and a little bit more mindful. And as I was talking, I just have to point out that there's one more thing that I was mindful of. And behind Sherry on her bookcase, the thing that I've been staring at while I'm talking at, uh, about all of this is she has an on-air sign that she got when we started <laughs> podcasting. And sitting right above it is the word kind. And that's where we went back to. And where, I'm sorry, where we started with kindness. Kindness to self, kindness to others, kindness to the earth. That feels like wisdom. And you had asked the question, if we were to take care of ourselves in a certain way, would in a preventative way, would that leak into the way we treat the earth? And that reminded me of something. And Stacey Brass Russell, our coach of life and love and everything, um, passionate and prosperous. She, I don't know if she was quoting someone, if it was from a book or a podcast or if she made it up. I don't even know where it comes from. But I remember her saying something like, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so I'm not even going to try to explain that because I think our listeners are smart, but how you do one thing is how you do everything. Notice how that's true in your life. Notice where that shows up in different ways. It doesn't have to be exactly the same flavor, texture, you know, color, whatever, but how, when you, the way we look at things, the way we interact with the world. And so maybe that's a place to start. It's kind of, you know, how you do one thing and you do other things and then these little tiny steps, like two years ago, maybe three, I wouldn't have even known the word forest bathing. It would never would have occurred to me. But when I started spending more time in nature, I started doing things differently because I was interacting on a regular basis with different types of environments. And here's some of the things that I learned. And that is that forest bathing has research that says that it has preventative health benefits. And that's where I began this long winding conversation. It's like a trail with lots of switchbacks and sometimes we're climbing uphill and sometimes we just get to walk through the meadow. But in quoted in this article by Kimberly Jordan Allen, she says, for me, the aim of forest bathing is presence building a relationship and fostering communication with the more than human world. It means developing meaningful relationships to nature based on feelings and sensory experiences. In addition, it brings a greater sense of connection, intimacy, refuge, and communion to that which is bigger and beyond the larger interconnected web of life. And I am a part of it. So let me ask you a question. Before you ever forest bathe, from that description, can you, can you relate, even not forest bathing, to all of those things that she says? The interconnected, right? So the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. You do everything. Even though the forest bathing activity is different, the essence of it is how you live your life. The essence of it is how you've always kind of, doesn't mean we're not growing and evolving and doing different things. And maybe this goes to that philosophy of, is there an unchanging piece of self? I don't know. I feel like everything has the potential to change, but maybe there's that kernel that's something inside that guides us that is our, our Northern star, our true North, our, our instinct, that guide, that pull 
that has always been there and is just leading us in different places so that we can figure out who we are in this in this very sort of mapped out, detoured existence that we live in. <laughs> Sometimes I talk and I'm like, oh my God, just stop talking. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I hope you guys don't think that way. Keep tuning in. Yes. Come back, come back. We have lots of fun things. Some oh days God. we wander and some days we're just straight on <laughs> to exactly what it means we need to talk about. But it's kind of, you know, we're talking about wisdom and I think wisdom is a wandering trail, right? Sometimes we are able to touch it and see it and experience it and be like, oh my gosh. And other times it feels a bit elusive and needs to be searched for that innate wisdom. And that comes, I think, back to the practices that we have that help us to get to know ourselves and the world that we live in on a much more intimate basis. And when I step away from them, I don't think I'm very wise. I think I'm confused and sometimes angry, maybe depressed or short-tempered. Those don't feel like wise responses to what's going on in the world around me. Or aloof, just not even noticing the things that I'm doing that might not be for the highest good. But when I can find myself not abandoning my practices, maybe abbreviating them or <laughs> Right? Maybe abbreviating them. When I make the time to do the things that keep me healthy and calm and at peace, I think I show up better and I interact better with how I treat others and the earth and my environment. So we, we talked a little bit about like during the pandemic when there were no cars, on, fewer cars on the road, no planes in the sky, that the earth had got a breather. The earth had a chance to pause. And we saw some significant shifts in that amount of time. The fact that we learned nothing from it in, in the rearview mirror, like now that the pandemic's done, there's, it, it's almost like we've gone into overdrive to compensate for that time or to somehow, you know, but if, where is the wisdom there? The wisdom, we were offered a real life lesson in, you know, with, with data to, to support it, I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> I'm going to say that and maybe I'll throw some data in the show notes. But we, we look at the earth and the earth was able to regenerate, to heal herself on some level to some degree during that time. And so what we learn when we look at the earth is our capacity to heal. It goes back to Lisa Rankin in the very first season one, when we were talking about how she she was first introduced to the regenerative healing nature of the body when she was a kid and would cut herself and she would watch, she could bandaid on it and then the body healed it. So she was like, oh, the body has this wisdom to heal itself. And it was wisdom that did that. It was this innate, you know, sort of thing that the body does. The way the seeds, the perennial seeds keep coming back and back and back. Then I thought that was really, really interesting that we learned that the body can heal itself. So someone else might look at the earth and see that time during the pandemic where the earth was able to heal itself a bit and get the data from that. So it's just where we pay attention, where we're looking, where we're finding the wisdom that we can incorporate into our own experience. And wisdom, like you said, in the instinct piece is not always deliberate. It's not always, you know, like that academic smarts and street smarts. I think street smarts comes from like that instinct, that hair on the back of your neck. And I've got stories about that too, about knowing when I was in danger and, and listening and trusting that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, you know, going back to 
you know, the pandemic and the earth getting the chance to breathe, you know, some things I think based on talking with different people that there are some changes, they might be slow, they might be small. Like obviously our doctors and nurses and hospitals have to go to a building in order to care for their patients. And there's many other people who need to go to a place to do the things that they do to earn a living and contribute to, to their families and to others that they serve. But there are also companies that um, have allowed people to continue to work from home. Again, there is that idea that they're saving resources. Maybe they're saving resources of turning electric on in a building or the resources of people having to drive from place to place. Also, Maybe there's a better work-life balance when people are able to to eliminate that commute time. Now, I've worked from home and not from home, and I recognize that it's not oh, it's not for everybody. You know, it, it's not the thing that is going to go across as a widespread solution. But for those that it does work well with, who still do really great work from the comfort of their own home and maybe from behind a Zoom screen. There are small moves forward that beyond just the job that people are doing while they're staying at home, but how is that impacting keeping people off the roads with traffic? Maybe I don't get flipped the bird so much on 95 when I do have to be there because there's less people and maybe we're a little bit less angry when we are, you know, in those times where we do, we can't be hermits. We have to be out in the world and get places, but, um, Maybe some of those very small changes have much bigger impacts that we can't see yet, and we might in the future. So our decision-making maybe has to go beyond just one eye view into expansive parameters so that we can see situations through a variety of lenses when choices are made. And some of them are very earth-friendly. And so as we wrap this up, maybe your practice for wisdom is meditation. And you can meditate outside if you wish. And the reason I bring up meditation and, you know, mindfulness meditation, transcendental meditation, whatever guided meditation, let your meditation come to you. Like what is, you might have to sample a few different things, but, you know, stick to one for a while. But that stillness, that quiet, that when the ripples begin to still, that's when we can most clearly see our reflections in the water. So it's that same kind of stillness where we still the, the ripples of our own mind and our own agitations so that we can better understand ourselves and with that understanding and maybe operate from a kinder place. So I would offer meditation. And mine is very similar and I pulled it from my nature meditations deck. So, hey, look at that. We both went to the same place. And this one's called, uh, I asked specifically as I shuffled my deck, to give me a message for today's podcast. And this was the message that came out. Mother Nature's message is the title of the card. Nature is always ready to teach us something. We just need to learn to listen. Whether it's a lesson in harmony, simplicity, strength, patience, or generosity, there is so much to be discovered if we're willing to tune in. So today, Find a place to sit outside for at least 10 minutes. Keep your eyes open and see what nature offers up. Bring your attention to the earth, the sky, the animals, 
the plants and the trees. If you find your mind drifting off to something else, just gently bring it back to the present moment. What are you experiencing? And what do you think the earth is trying to tell you? Beautiful. Until Hmm. next time, right? Until next time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.